Happy Palm Sunday, everyone. Well, there we go. <laughs> Gee, I know. What's going on? You guys still on spring break? Well, happy Palm Sunday anyways. And I want you to know, if you were gone, I want you to know that the weather yesterday is how it was all last week. It was amazing. There were no days when it was in the 40s and hurricane uh, gale winds. It was just 65 and sunny, right? All right, good. Um, it's good to uh, have many of you back. It's good to have Scott back. He was in uh, Mexico on a mission trip. Um, we also commissioned a, a few weeks ago some folks from Haiti, uh, or not from Haiti, some folks who went to Haiti, and so they had a, a fun trip back. They were supposed to get back here Thursday night, then their, their flight out of Atlanta got canceled, and so then all day Friday they had to ride in a bus to get here late Friday night. Yeah, thank God we were not on that trip. Amen? All right. So uh, I'm sure they had a great time. Um, I also want to, we talked about spiritual gifts and kind of celebrating spiritual gifts and the ways that each of us are gifted. And so uh, I was thinking about that as uh, Stacy Nelson, who was kind of newer to kind of leading, and Tony Ostrom, who was up on the drums. Uh, I wanted to thank them for kind of stepping up and being willing to, uh, uh, to do that. And then also uh, Otta Canal um, um, did these banners, these new banners that are on either side here. And so thank you to her and to the work of the church of uh, Kind of everyone has gifts, uh, and so what a blessing it is to be able to see those gifts being used. And so uh, this morning is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to do two different readings. We're going to do the traditional Palm Sunday reading that comes from the Gospel of Matthew, this particular version from the Gospel of Matthew, and then we're also going to do a reading from the letter to the Philippians. So let's hop in and do that from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew says, when they, uh, being uh, the disciples and Jesus, had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And then from the letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you on this beautiful Palm Sunday, and we give you praise for the way, Lord, that you entered into Jerusalem. We give you praise, God, not only for the fact that you decided to come down, but that you humbled yourself to be in our midst. We pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to know how best we might reflect that same humility. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So not only is this Palm Sunday, and not only is this the last Sunday of Lent, but this is also the first Sunday in our part three of our series, True North. And if you were with us back in the fall, then you know that we talked for 10 weeks or so on what we believe about God and about Scripture and about humanity. And, and then during part two, we talked about, well, what practices do a people of God have? If we know that we have, been, we have received the love and grace of Jesus, how then do we respond to that? And, and we talked about how this is an act of gratitude. We do these things not in order to achieve God's love, but out of a response to God's love, out of gratitude. So those are things like worship or reading the scripture or being in biblical community. And then one of the things that we didn't necessarily talk about during that time is that those practices actually, not only are they acts of gratitude, but they also help us to look more like Jesus. And so, during part three, what we're going to do is we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus look like, and how can we be more and more shaped to look like that? Right? This is what theologians oftentimes call the process of sanctification. And throughout the Gospels and into the letters, we are told, just as we saw in our Philippians text, that we are to have the mind of Jesus, that we are to try to look more and more each and every day like the one who has saved us. And so it seemed like, as we were talking about which of these virtues should we deal with today, on Palm Sunday, we thought, well, perhaps we should talk about humility. Because surely, if Palm Sunday does anything, it reminds us of the humility of Jesus Christ. Of the one who, again, as Philippians said, who emptied himself, who became a human, who died, was humble enough to die on the cross in order to save us. Right? And one of, the old, one of our church fathers has said that humility is the root, the mother, the nurse, the foundation, and the bond of all other virtues. And so it's appropriate for us to begin with humility because the reality is until we can understand us and see us for, see one another and see ourselves really as who we truly are, then we can never really know how we can begin to look more like Jesus. 
So what is humility? Well, my, my wife kind of laughed somewhat this week earlier when I told her the subject because she said, you know, it's kind of funny uh, that the guy is going to be preaching on this whose fourth grade teacher described him to his parents as having an overdeveloped sense of self-worth. I didn't think it was nearly as funny as she did, but she thought that was quite funny. And, uh, uh, and I thought, you know what, that's probably true. You know, probably we should have asked Scott to preach on humility, but I already have him preaching on gentleness in a few weeks, which is clearly something that he should preach on instead of me. And then as I thought about it more, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a pretty great job at this. So, um, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so, uh, so, so anyway, so as I was thinking about that, uh, and, and, and as I was reading this week, I did, I, honestly, I struggled with figuring out what should I talk about. And I noticed that even like the biblical scholars and commentators, as they would talk about humility, they just, they, they talked about how important it was. They talked about how this was important to Jesus. And then they tended to not really say much else. They just said, well, you know, it's humility. It's really important. We should really do that. And then they didn't actually talk about what it is or, or why it's important or, or, or how we become more humble, right? And so I don't think that... I am necessarily alone in kind of wrestling with what is humility and, and how are we to do it. And, and so perhaps the best way to begin is by talking about what it's not. Just briefly, humility is not having a low self-esteem. It's not kind of walking around like you're Eeyore or, or some other kind of despondent character. It's, it doesn't mean that you have a low uh, self-image. It doesn't mean that you think that people should just trample on you all the time. It doesn't mean any of those things. That's not genuine humility. Humility, some have said, is being able to see yourself as you truly are. And as Christians then, and this is why we started by talking about what we believe, it should take us back to what we talked about when we talked about who are we as humans. And what we said was this, that as humans, we are people, each and every one of us, who have been created unique and special. Uh, by the Almighty God, and that we are loved as a part of that creation. That's who you are. But the person next to you has also been created uniquely and beautifully and special. It's not just you, and you didn't create yourself, but God created you and the person next to you special and beautiful and wonderful. So, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the example that I've used before that I think is always helpful is C.S. Lewis's example from the screw tape letters. And he says it's like this. If a, an architect, after finishing his beautiful cathedral, is staring up at there and looking at this wonderful cathedral, and someone comes up to him and says, wow, that's a, that's a great cathedral. Wow, you did, you did an amazing job. He doesn't say, oh, I don't know. You really, I mean, that old thing? No, it wasn't that great. No. That the architect can say, you know what, thank you, and I agree. I, I, think it's, I think it is beautiful. But if another architect builds a cathedral, let's say, right next door, that is also amazing that the previous, the first architect can come over to the second architect and say, wow, great job. This is amazing. This is wonderful. You did an incredible job without thinking that that means that he or she is less of an architect because this other architect made this beautiful cathedral. 
See, that's the rub. Most of us, perhaps, we're good at saying, oh, thanks, you know what, I think that's pretty good. But we struggle oftentimes with being able to say to the next person, wow, you also did an amazing job because there's something within us that is afraid if we do that, then that means that this person has more worth or is more loved or is more special than us. And so what happens then is that when we struggle with believing that or living into that, then then immediately everyone around us becomes not fellow special people created by God. They become competition. And if your worth or how much you feel like you're loved is based on how good or not good you are doing compared to other people, then you are struggling with understanding humanity and you are struggling with humility. Philippians, it uses the word conceit. It says, do not be conceited, basically. And and that's the opposite of humility. And in the Greek, literally, it doesn't say conceit. It says this. It says, empty glory. In other words, I love that. What it means is that when you are getting your value and your worth and whether or not you are loved by whether you are a better architect or a better parent or a better child or a better worker or a better pastor, whatever it is, that you are seeking after empty glory, that it is a bottomless pit and that you will keep trying to fill that pit by feeling a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better and it the bottom will fall out and you will have to start all over again now where do we see that I think most of us probably wrestle with that at one time or another or all the time right you see it because here's the reason why it's bottomless because just about the time that you feel a little bit better I'm just a little bit better. We would never say that out loud, but it's what we're thinking. I'm just a little bit better parent. I'm just a little bit better this or better that. Now I feel kind of good about myself because I'm a little bit better. Guess what happens? All of a sudden, then yes, someone comes and builds a better cathedral next to you. Right? And so all of a sudden you think, oh no, now i got to start all over again. And so we either get really depressed or we have to come up with some rationalization as to why that cathedral or why they are better than you, right? Something like, you know, well, I work 60 hours a week. If I only worked 56 hours a week like this guy, I would spend the other four hours working out my abs so that I could have a six-pack like he could, right? Or, or, or maybe you say, well, you know what? I mean, if my parents would have been more supportive, then I would have gotten a better, gone to a better college. I could have been, uh, you'd have gotten a better job, and then I could have had a nicer house, right? But, I mean, she, she just did a great job. Her parents were great. Or, or you know what? If my spouse was more supportive, you know, then our children would be better, and then our kids would be just as good as those kids over there. But, and we, so we come up with all these things, and everything becomes this competition and this, this struggle, and we, we're wrestling with all these things because we are getting our value or our worth or we feel like we're loved based on how we are comparing to people next to us rather than on simply the fact of who God has created us to be. And it is exhausting. And so we keep working, and we keep working, and we keep working, and in the midst of that filling up this pit of empty glory, all of a sudden, he pops up. And he says, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm God Almighty. I'm on a donkey. What are you doing? I love this particular picture because it's animated, of course, and it's almost comical, almost farcical, really. And I think that we miss out on this part of the story of Palm Sunday. 
Because in some ways, we've kind of sentimentalized it, right? I mean, oftentimes, you know, we, we, we sing Hosanna songs, which are great, and then we, we have poems, which are fine, and, and, and sometimes we have children that come in, and they're waving their little fronds, and they're poking people with it, and we love it, and, and parents are up, and they're taking pictures with their phones, and it's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe we'll do that next year. I'm not trying to, uh, say, criticize that, but I am saying that in the midst of that, we sentimentalize this whole scene when really we miss out on the comical or farcical nature of this, right? That here we are as the creation of God, as the creation of Christ, and we are working to try to prove ourselves that we are worthy, that we're important, and we're doing all of this thing, and we're doing all this work so that we we feel like, okay, at least I'm a little bit better than that person, and we're doing all of this work, and all of a sudden, Jesus, God Almighty, comes up to us, hey, I wonder if we ever realize just what a strange juxtaposition this is that we are spending so often all of this energy trying to climb up the ladder to our high horse and Jesus, who says, hey, I know who I am. I don't have to worry about that, says, why don't you just get on the donkey? So why is it important that we are humble? Well, I think first and foremost it's important because when you're not and you are trying to work at proving yourself, it is exhausting. Again, we all know this. And sometimes, you know, we end the day and we feel a little bit good because maybe we did something just a little bit better or we go on Facebook and we see, well, our life is at least just a fraction better than somebody else and we feel good. But then the next day we wake up and there's somebody who's got a little bit more than we do. And so we got to start trying to fill that empty glory pit again and again and again. And one of the things that happens when we can just finally be content with we are, and this doesn't mean that you don't try hard. Hear me now. This doesn't mean that we don't work hard. This doesn't mean that you don't do things. But you do those things for the glory of God, not so that you can feel like you are worth something. You do those things. When we do that and we finally reach that place, then all of a sudden the people next to us, they're not competitors for our worth or our identity. They are somebody that we can serve, somebody that we can love, somebody that we can embrace and care for. Right? I kind of feel like the reason why Jesus came on a donkey was, A, in order to show us humility— as Matthew says, but also because there's something about seeing this beast of burden, this animal who carries our burdens, and seeing Jesus on top of that donkey, the same Jesus who also carries our burdens. And if we would be but willing to say, I'm not going to keep having to strive for my own worth, and that means having them talk about how good I am or feel like I'm good compared to other people, all of a sudden there is this enormous weight that I think is lifted off of our shoulders. I also think that a part of the reason why Paul talks about humility all the time is because he knows that it is the bedrock in so many ways of healthy community. You cannot have healthy relationships and healthy community without having humility. 
Because if everyone you see around you, even in the church, if it's a competition, well, let me get on one more committee than them, or let me do this or that, all of a sudden then you're going to have disruption. All of a sudden, you're not going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. You are going to be competitors with one another. Pride divides. Humility always unites. And it is critical in relationships for there to be a massive amount of humility. C.S. Lewis, again, I think it's in Mere Christianity, he says that oftentimes when you come out of a conversation with somebody who is humble, you may not come out of that conversation and say, wow, what a humble person, but you come out of that relationship or out of that conversation saying, wow, that person took a major interest in what I was saying. That person was genuinely listening and cared for me. I thought about professors that I've had. I've had professors just like you, but many of you have had professors who are, who, are, who are smart as all get out, right? But there are a few professors that I really remember. You know what? Those professors are not, I don't remember them because they were, had great encyclopedic kind of uh, memories. I remember them because they actually cared about me, right? They cared about somebody other than themselves, and so they were willing to engage. Because here's the thing, when you don't have to prove yourself to somebody to say, well, let me make sure that this person knows how good I am, then you can actually be present and just listen and engage with them. If someone were to say to me, why is it, Jerry, that why do you think that there is so much division in our society, so much division in our churches? There may be many reasons, but I would tell you that one of the top reasons is because there is a lack of humility in our conversations. What you end up finding is that when we have difficult issues, especially volatile issues that we are facing, what happens inevitably, it seems like nowadays, is that, is, is that there is no real listening, there's no real caring, and the only reason that you're quiet when someone else is talking is so that you can come up with your own idea of how as soon as they are quiet, you're going to tell them and prove to them why you are right and why they are wrong. Right? This is what I see on Facebook all of the time. I mean, it just, I am gobsmacked by it. Right? So, so, and this is just a brief aside, and I, I, Facebook is fine. But you've got 850 or 950 or 1,000 friends, which we all know you don't have that many friends, right? I mean, you can only have 20 friends maybe at the most, right? And so you have these people who are really more acquaintances, right? And, and, and then we decide that, oh, we're going to take this kind of volatile issue, and I know what we're going to do. We're going to put this up, and we're going to post it, and we're going to, yeah, and then that's going to prove our point. And to whom is that going to prove a point? To everyone who already agrees with you. And then everybody else, they're either going to unfriend you or they're not going to say anything or they're going to write a comment that says, well, I'm going to prove to you how you're wrong. And they're going to do that. And then somebody else who's another friend of yours, but that person who commented doesn't actually know, they're going to say something else to that person. And before you know it, you have two people who don't actually know each other and they're going back and forth. And guess what? Absolutely nothing happens. And if we want to, as a church, be a different kind of people, I am imploring us can we begin by being humble enough to say, we are not going to engage in that, but what we are going to do is we're going to be able to be humble enough to have conversation and to listen and to not think that we've got every single thing figured out and that our main goal is to try to prove everything to everyone. We are going to engage. Remember Jesus. Jesus had opinions. One of those was that he was the son of God. That's a pretty big opinion. And he was not afraid to share them. 
But he did so out of a remarkable amount of humility. He engaged, as you see the stories of Jesus with people, he engaged with them, he listened to them, he already knew them, right? Like the woman at the well, he already knew her. And it was out of that that then they were able to have discussions. That doesn't mean that you're always going to end up agreeing. That's not some kind of utopia. But it means that everything changes when you enter into it out of a spirit of humility. I think that's also why sharing our faith, as we talked about a few weeks ago, you have to be humble if we want to share our faith. What is our hope as Christians? I believe this. Our hope is that everyone will want to receive the love and grace of Jesus and that people will believe that Jesus is Lord. What does Philippians say? Philippians says that Jesus humbled himself. He became human. He died on the cross. And because of that, at some point, point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet for some reason, oftentimes as Christians, we think we can skip over the donkey to get to the glory. That we can skip past the humility and just try to prove why Jesus is Lord. And so we may do it with loud words. We may do it out of anger. We may do it out of a Facebook post. We may do it out of this or out of that or out of this. And Jesus says, what you doing? How about you get back on the donkey? It begins with humility. It begins always with being on the donkey. Again, do we have good news to share? We do. But it has to be shared out of humble relationship. Otherwise, we're just engaging in what the society around us is engaging in. No progress is made. Of course, the question, though, is how do we become more humble? Right? This is, I think, probably why people wrestle with this, because we don't know exactly how to become more humble. Right? You can't just kind of say, okay, all right, today, today I'm going to be humble. Right? It's really hard. Which is why I think that we have to engage in what I kind of call donkey disciplines. Okay? That's a trademark. Don't try to steal that. Right? Donkey disciplines. Right? These are the disciplines of the donkey. What are these? Well, first and foremost, of course, it is worship. All right, we talked about that. This is, again, why we talked about these things previously. Worship, because what is worship doing? It is reorienting us. Oh, that's right. God is God. I am not. I've been created special by God as this act of worship. So has this person over here. So has this person over here. Every time we worship, we are recentering our lives and understanding who we are and who God is. But listen to me, that means you have to do it more than just once every six or eight weeks. And it also means you have to do it more than just once a week. You have to live a life where you are trying to do that. Put things into your life that force you to remember who God is and who you are. Because the pressures externally and internally for you to need to start finding Finding your worth by how you're doing compared to this person or that person are going to be too strong to overcome someone who's only worshiping, let's say, once every few weeks or even just once a week. Right? So worship is the first, is the foundational donkey discipline. The second one, I think, or a second one, is to ask yourself, is to have a metric. How are you doing? How curious are you about other people's lives? 
Do you come away from conversations and you genuinely have no idea what's going on in their life because you've mostly, either you've just talked the whole time or the whole time they were talking, you were thinking, I can't wait till this person's done because I got something that's actually interesting to share with them. Right? What's, how often, how many times do you begin by asking questions? Right? It may, be, it may be a good discipline, a good donkey discipline for you this week is to say, there's one or two people here, and I'm just going to ask them a question just to try to, you know, even if I don't want to, and, and I think sometimes it's okay to force things, even if I don't care, I'm going to ask them anyways. Now, don't come up to me and ask me a question, all right? But ask somebody a question just to kind of help you to kind of say, okay, so, so where am I? Because people who, who, who don't ask questions, it seems to me, who aren't curious about other people's lives, it's because they've kind of got everything figured out already. So why do I need anybody? I don't need that. No, no, no. Humility says, yes, you do. I think another donkey discipline, and this is a really difficult one, is that when you are in the midst of a difficult or a humbling situation, that rather than spending all the time saying, this isn't fair, or, or, or asking, how can I get out of here? Or, or, or dreaming about how it could look different? That maybe you spend time in the midst of that humbling situation simply saying, Jesus, how might you shape me more like you in the midst of this? Earlier this week, I got an email from a friend at a first church that I served up in the Chicago area. And they're having their 40th uh, uh, anniversary uh, coming up next month, and so they wanted to know if, as one of the pastors, I would write a letter, which is great. But I began to think a little bit more about those six years that I spent at that particular church. And I came out, it was the first call, so I came out of seminary, man. I came out of seminary guns blazing. I mean, I was ready. I mean, God was going to use me in some pretty remarkable ways. And so I, I came out. I said, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to wow them with some pretty amazing sermons, with dynamic leadership, and with my good looks. And um, I told you, humility is a struggle. And so I, I thought, okay, this is, this is going to happen. And, and so every Sunday I would come in, right, and I'd, I'd roll in there, and, 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 and I'd sweated, and I'd cried, and I'd bled over this sermon, and it was gonna, I was going to give it with passion. It was going to be remarkable. And I'd, and I'd walk in, and about 40 or so people who were kind of scattered there, and I'd preach, you know, this sermon, and they'd be like, every once in a while you'd think, hey, I'm getting a nod, but then you'd realize they were just falling asleep. Some of them looked interested, but others of them looked off out the window. And for several months, every Sunday, after I was done and kind of said, hey, great to have you. It was so good to have you here. And I'd walk back into my office and I'd sit down. And it was everything I could do to not weep. I'd go out into the community, and people would be like, well, what do you do? I'd say, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Where do you, where do you pastor? And I'd tell them, and they'd be like, I never heard of it. I'd say, well, you know, it's right there on Coon Road. Yeah, I know Coon Road, but I still know. Well, you know, there's a big high school, Glenbard North High School, 3,000 student high school, right across the street. Like, oh, yeah, I know the high school. Wait, I think my son, when he went there, I think he parked in your parking lot. And say, so, yeah, yeah. And I realized I was pouring my life into a parking lot. Every Tuesday, I think it was a Tuesday afternoon, every week, I would walk out to the street corner because a part of my job was to get the trash. And I'd take the trash and I'd carry it back 
this fairly kind of long walk to put it back into the church. And I thought, man, I had big plans for God here. I was going to do something, and, and all I'm doing is walking back and forth with trash. What I didn't see then was that in many ways I actually wasn't walking. In many ways I was actually riding on an invisible donkey. A donkey, if I can be completely honest with you, that I had no desire to be One of the things that I noticed is after months and months and years of walking and riding on this donkey, that at some point I finally began to realize that maybe this thing wasn't about me. That maybe this wasn't about me proving to people how good I was or, 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 or hoping that they'd say, hey, you know what, we just really like you a little bit more than we liked the previous pastor. But maybe this was actually about just meeting people where they were. Whether they looked bored or disinterested. To ask them kind of what's going on. Rather than sitting there and kind of just complaining that I had to take the trash in every week. Maybe, maybe I could ask, well, what else is happening around here that God may be calling me to? That doesn't mean that today I am the most humble pastor in the world. I am not. But I will tell you this, the person who rode in in 2005 on his white horse looks very different than the person who hobbled out in 2011 having ridden that donkey for six years. My question for us today is, how are we doing at riding the donkey? How are we doing as individuals? How are we doing as a community? Humility is never something that our society is going to cultivate or encourage. And for 99% of us, it is not something that we are naturally born to be. I believe that if we can begin to engage more and more in the donkey disciplines, that the more that we can begin to worship and the more that we can begin to celebrate simply where we are, no matter where it is, that the more that we begin to do that, the more that we will begin to reflect the one who gives us love and grace and the one who came in humility riding on his donkey. Are we willing to get off of our striving for the horse of power and esteem in order to ride with Jesus? Amen.